I almost feel I don't need to preach. I should just let you all come up here and, and share your testimony. I think it will bless me. This morning I want to begin by sharing with you uh, from the book of Nehemiah. I just finished studying the book of Nehemiah and, and I'm, I was so blessed by reading this book in so many ways that I keep talking about it. Uh, at every turn I just keep trying to tell everybody what I read. And so let me uh, begin by reading to you a little bit from the book of Nehemiah as I prepare to bring to you a message for, for this morning. And um, I begin with chapter 8, verse 1. It says, Now all the people gathered together as one man in the open square that was in front of the water gate. And they told Ezra the scribe, to bring the book of the law of Moses, which the Lord had commanded Israel. So Ezra the priest brought the law, the law before the congregation of men and women and all who could hear with understanding on the first day of the seventh month. Then he read from it in the open square that was in front of the water gate from morning until midday before the men and women and those who could understand. And the ears of all the people were attentive to the book of the law. So Ezra the scribe stood on a platform of wood which they had made for the purpose. And beside him, at his right hand, stood, stood Matthiah, Shema, Aniah, Uriah, Hilkiah, and Manasiah. And at his left hand, Pediah, Mishael, Malkijah, Shahum, Hashabadana, Zechariah, and Meshulam. And Ezra opened the book in the sight of all the people, for he was standing above all the people. And when he opened it, all the people stood up. And Ezra blessed the Lord, the great God. Then all the people answered, Amen, Amen, while lifting up their hands, and they bowed their heads and worshipped the Lord with their faces to the ground. And then in chapter 10, verse 1, it says, Now those who placed their seal on the document were Nehemiah the governor, the son of Hakaliah, and Zedekiah. And it says then, continue, or I continue in verse 28, Now the rest of the people the priests, the Levites, the gatekeepers, the singers, the Nethinim, and all those who had separated themselves from the people of the land to the law of God, their wives, their sons, and their daughters, everyone who had knowledge and understanding, they joined with their brethren, their nobles, their nobles, and entered into a curse and an oath to walk in God's law, and was given by, that was given by Moses, the servant of God, and to observe and do all the commandments of the Lord our Lord, and His ordinance, and His statutes. 
what is happening here and you could continue to read all the way to the end of Nehemiah. But Nehemiah was the cupbearer of the king of Persia, Artaxerxes. And he received a visit from Jerusalem, a guy named Hananiah, with some other brethren. They are in exile in Babylon. They received a visit. And Nehemiah asked Hananiah, What has happened in Jerusalem? What is going on that for 70 years we have been in exile? What is the condition at home? How are my brothers and sisters? And Hananiah gives him a response that says, The land is destroyed. For 70 years it has been overrun by enemies. Overrun by disuse. Overrun by unfaithfulness. The temple is destroyed. The walls are broken down. No gates exist. They were all burned when the Babylonians came. The holy city is no more. And Nehemiah comes to serve the king with such a sad face. And the king says, why are you so sad? And Nehemiah says, because my people are hurting. My temple is destroyed and God is not worshipped anymore. May I have permission to go home and build again. Nehemiah is the one responsible for building the walls of Jerusalem. There were three returns from exile. One by a guy named Zerubbabel. He's the first one to lead a group of Jews back to Judea. And the land begins to be replenished a little bit. The second one to come is a priest by the name of Ezra. And Ezra is responsible for the rebuilding the spiritual life of Israel. And the third one is Nehemiah. Nehemiah is responsible for building the walls again. The enemies are constantly coming. They don't want the Jews to republish or replenish or rebuild. They don't want the Jews to have a life again. To the point that Nehemiah tells him to have a throth with one hand and a sword with the other. During the day they were to work. And at night, if ever the trumpet would sound, they would have to immediately take the sword. And that's how they lived for a while. The walls went up. All of the city became protected. And Nehemiah began to bring into order the chaos that had existed before. And then he called Ezra to stand in a platform and to read God's holy word. And God's people got excited again. And one of the things they did is that they signed again a document which was the covenant of the people with God. 
a resigning of the covenant. And that's what I read to you today. Every man, every woman, and everyone who had any understanding affixed their name and accepted the responsibilities of being the people of God and the consequences. Both of those things were accepted by the people and the people of God began to rebuild all of their lives. This morning, one of the things that we are going to do, and I'm going to lead you on doing, is to reaffirming our covenant. One of the things that has always blessed me is that to understand that whenever God did something amazing, He always told His people to celebrate it every year. Because the moment the people would stop celebrating, they will forget what the Lord had done for them and with them. So every year the Passover would have to be celebrated. Every year tabernacles would be celebrated. Every year Purim had to be celebrated. Every year the new year would be celebrated. And every year we celebrate this moment that we call Covenant Sunday where we reaffirm and recognize that we have been called to be God's special elected people. That we are a church belonging to God and in whom God is worshipped and glorified. In some ways this covenant is very personal and individual. You each have a responsibility to the covenant with God. To let Him be your God. To be, let Him be the God of your home. The God of your business. The God of your, the God of your lives. In many ways, this covenant is very personal. Very individual. And you have to enter into that covenant as an individual. You must embrace it with an open heart. And give yourself to it. Or you must reject it altogether with a fist toward God. Or what happens many times with the covenant, and the Jews did the same thing, they paid lip service and made promises to God, which they soon forgot and they soon did not perform. And all you have to do in the book of Nehemiah, go and read chapter 13, and you will see that this is a human condition. That God is faithful to His covenant, but we ourselves are not always. And perhaps that's one of the reasons we need to reaffirm it every year. But it is not only a personal and individual covenant. I think it is also a corporate covenant that this church as a church needs to embrace. The covenant is not hard to understand. The covenant is not hard to understand. It is a covenant of love. It is a covenant that says that we will love the Lord our God with all our souls and minds and strength and with all our heart. 
that we will love Him and put Him first in all things in our lives. That all things will take a second place to the love that we have for our glorious God. It is also a God that calls us to love our neighbor. To love our neighbor. Whoever he is. Whatever he looks like. We are to love our neighbor because God's love for us has to be reflective. It has to be reflective. God loved us and loves us when we are not worthy of that love. God loved us and God loves us even when we fail in the keeping of the covenants. And God's love for us must be reflective upon people. Whomever we encounter. We may not agree with them. But we must love them. The covenant is not hard to understand. It is a covenant of obedience to our God and to His Word. And it is a covenant of service to all persons that we may encounter on our path. The covenant is not hard to understand. It is a covenant of grace from God. It is a covenant of a God who says, I will not give up on you. You fail, I may need to punish you. I may need to send you in exile. I may need to correct you. I may need to get your attention, but I will never ever give up on you. It is a covenant of grace from God in our human frailties. And it is a covenant of personal surrender from us to God. It is a personal surrender where we acknowledge that we do not own ourselves. That we are not our own. That we are the Lord's, will always be the Lord's and one day will be in His presence, and we will depend in that He will lose none, but raise them all, as Jesus has promised. The covenant is not hard to understand. It may be hard to do at times, but it is not hard to understand. Sometimes, and we need to acknowledge this, Sometimes we as Christians make our faith a little bit dependent on convenience, not on obedience. We live in a time and in a nation that sometimes the freedom that we have, we think gives us the right to choose what part of God we want to obey, whether we want to worship or whether we don't. When we, in actuality, are belonging to God, we are His people, and we are to worship and serve Him alone. Our Christianity, the Christianity that I experience, and that perhaps I sometimes live myself, is sometimes so encircled, 
in what I think I want to do, not what God wants me to do. A Christianity of convenience. We walk with Christ when we need Him, and when it's easy and convenient, or when it makes us look good in front of people on Sunday mornings. But there are times that our faith will be challenged with inconveniences, with sacrifices, with standing up for truth, even if it costs us. And we know about costs, for we have paid it. But maybe not enough. Maybe we'll pay some more in the future, I don't know. But I'd rather have Christ than have anything in the world. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, who I have read even since I was in seminary, and later, a few years ago, I happened to pick up his letters from prison and began to read it again. And after reading more of his biography and some of his letters from prison, I went back to reading The Cost of Discipleship, a little green book, that to tell you the truth, I couldn't finish. It's a heavy book. But I want to tell you some of the things that this martyr for the faith that gave his life fighting Hitler, what kind of things he spoke when he spoke about discipleship and faith. Dietrich Bonhoeffer said in his book, The Cost of Discipleship, Christianity without discipleship is always Christianity without Christ. Christianity without discipleship is always a Christianity without Christ. He also said, when Christ calls a man, he bids him to come and die. To come and die. Christianity is not for cowards. Christianity is for men and women of valor. To live this life to the glory of God. When Christ calls a man, he bids him come and die. He also says, the only man or woman who has the right to say that he's justified by grace alone is the man who has left all to follow Christ. He also said, the earthly form of Christ is the form that died on the cross. The image of God is the image of Christ crucified. It is to this image that the life of the disciples must be conformed. In other words, they must be conformed to his death. The Christian life is a life of crucifixion. In baptism, the form of Christ's death is impressed upon His own. They are dead to the flesh and to sin. They are dead to the world, and the world is dead to them. 
Anybody living in the strength of Christ's baptism lives in the strength of Christ's death. Listen, this is not a teacher who just spoke words and didn't do it. This is a man who risked everything until he was hanged by the Germans in a prison. The church, your church, St. David's, can never exist without the cross. The cross leads us and the cross precedes us. The church is not about convenience. It is about following the cross. And a disciple without sacrifice is not a true disciple of Jesus Christ. Jesus said in Matthew chapter 10, He who does not take his cross and follow after me is not worthy of me. He who finds his life will lose it. And he who loses his life for my sake will find it. We live in a world that is sometimes difficult, isn't it? We all go to work in a world at times that is very challenging and where you cannot express your faith openly. There are places that you cannot even have a picture in your desk or anything that might remind you of your faith. There are places you cannot have your cross outside of your dress or your shirt. We live in a country that is free, but our freedoms are being eroded every single day. And yet it is here that you and I have been planted. Not a hundred years ago and not a hundred years from now. We are planted to be the church of Jesus Christ today, in our day, in our world, so that those that come after us will know that salvation is only in the name of Jesus Christ. If we cease preaching the gospel, if the church is weakened to the point of disappearing, salvation will not be known. The sacrifice of Christ will not be known to future generations. That is the covenant that you and I are asked to embrace and to uphold and to reaffirm today and every year that we do so. This is the Christian covenant that is what we want to do today. I also want to briefly say this before I lead you into that covenant. And I'm going to say this to you for teaching purposes. Because the other thing we're going to do is you're going to bring your pledges in for next year. I've been praying about this for a long time. 
And the Lord in prayer has spoken to me things that I needed to know. And I wrote them down. And they were for me more than for you. But if they bless me, I want you to be blessed as well. As I prayed about my and my wife's giving for next year. I started writing on a journal what I thought the Lord was saying to me. And one of the things he said to me, and I, you can keep it if you like it. He said that money is but a tool to be used for the glory of God and the extension of his kingdom. Money is but a tool to be used for the glory of God and the extension of his kingdom. Therefore, the tithe, the 10% of our earnings, belong to the Lord first upon all things and from the top. Not from the last bill I pay, but from the very top. Not from the net, but from the gross. That my money, my earnings, whatever I receive, the first 10% of it belongs to the Lord. It is a tool given to me to glorify God in our family's life. As I thought about it, I also thought that it is also a tool to provide for our well-being. To provide for our sustenance and for those other things that we need while we are here on earth. Including times of fun. Including all the things that we normally do and for, for which money is so important to, to us. But that's why the 90% is ours, but the 10% is His. 90% is for us to have the life that we feel we need to have. For us to provide for every need, but never to use the 10% that belongs to the Lord for our use. And then the Lord said to me, and this is in prayer, not a voice that came to me. He just said, what part of my 10% are you using for another kingdom? What part of my 10% are you using for your pleasure or your needs? And he made me look at that. What part of what belongs to him I am using to pay bills? What part of what belongs to him I'm using for fun? What part of his 10% I am misguiding into some other direction? And then I was coming to church the other day and I was listening to the radio and I was listening to Alistair Begg because I, I, I think he's a fantastic teacher and I'm always blessed by him. And he said something, in the midst of me praying about these things, and in the midst of I believing the Lord was speaking to me, one of the things he said, that he, he, said, he kind of said, Father Jose, is the not giving the tithe 
an issue of loving money. And he was teaching on 2 Timothy or 1 Timothy that the love of money is the root of all evil. And it's, it's the reason that we have such a struggle with the tithe. Is it an issue of not willing or is it an issue that we love money so much that we need to hoard it? Including the Lord's 10%. Is it an issue of love for money? Or love of money? We all need money. There's no question about it. But do we love money more than we love the Lord? Are our needs above what belongs to the Lord? You can do with this what you want, but if I don't give it to you, I'm being unfaithful to the Word of God as the Lord gave it to me for my life and my family's life. You can, you can throw it away if you want to, but you can go to the Word and you will know the truth. And I want to say this to close today. I want with all sincerity in my heart I have been your priest for 25 years next year, next March. 25 years since the first day I walked into the offices of St. David's. I want to say to you personally and collectively that you have been a blessing. That you have been a blessing and that I am so grateful for the many enormous sacrifices that all of you have made throughout these 25 years and before. That you, I know that, that you are giving to the maximum of your abilities. I believe that you are giving sacrificially. And I want to thank you with all my heart. I want you to know that I truly, honestly, I am thankful to you. But I also want you to know that if you are not yet to the point where the Lord calls us to be, that there's room for improvement in all of us. And so today, we restart a new year with a new covenant. And I call on you to make God God. Not a figure of our imagination. But God. The God that rules our homes, our lives. The God to whom we bring our brokennesses, our mistakes, our errors. The God that is with us when we need Him. And I, I am calling this church to stand up strong for the Lord no matter what. And that is what I'm calling you today as part of this covenant. I'd like to ask you all to stand with me, please.